scripture comes from the book of Ephesians chapter 4 verse 28 and the book of Colossians chapter 3 verse 23 to 24. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Good afternoon, my name is Aaron, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Exilic, and I wanna welcome you to uh, our service today. Uh, at the top of every year, uh, we do a sermon series called The DNA of Exilic, where we take a look at three things, uh, our unique name, our mission, and our vision. And for the past four weeks, we've taken a look at our name and our mission. And for the next two weeks, we're going to be taking a look at our vision. Now, oftentimes people use the words uh, mission and vision interchangeably, uh, but they actually mean two different things. Your mission is what you want to do. Your vision, however, is who you want to be as a result of doing this mission. So our, our mission is right here. Now here's the question. Who do we want to become? How do we as a church want to shape you and form you as a result of doing this? And if you take a look at the inside front cover uh, of your bulletin, you'll see our mission and vision statement. Our vision for you is to be 21st century disciples who think critically and act positively. Now, why didn't we just say that we want to be disciples who think critically and act positively? Why did we insert the word 21st century? Well, on the one hand, our creeds and our, our beliefs never change, uh, and they should not change. And so this is the reason why we recite the Apostles' Creed from the second century, the Nicene Creed from the fourth century. Our creeds, our core doctrines, they should never, ever change. On the other hand, the world that we live in has radically changed. And so here's the question, how do I, as a follower of Jesus, navigate through this modern world considering my city's ethos and nomenclature? How do I do that? How do I think about, how do I think critically about it, and how do I act positively to it? And so for the next two sermons, I want to take a look at our jobs and our work, and there are two reasons why. Number one, we spend 70 to 80% of our waking hours at our jobs. Some of you actually spend more than 70 to 80% of your waking hours at your jobs. We are by far the most overworked city in the country and one of the most overworked cities in the world. Secondly, we not only spend 70 to 80% of our waking hours at our jobs, but because we spend 70 to 80% of our waking hours at our jobs, our jobs consume our time, our energy, and our talents. And so there has to be a way where we can sort of use our time, energy, and our talents for the common good of all people. And so that's what I want to take a look at uh, for the next two weeks. And I have to say that I've read a lot of literature on work, and I've heard a lot of things on work. And I have to say that most of the things that I have read and I have heard I have actually not found that helpful. Not helpful enough for it to alter the way I approach my work, 
on a mundane Wednesday afternoon at 3 p.m. I was reading something this past week, and one of the commenters said this. They said, we get it. God doesn't want everyone to be a pastor or a missionary, and we should all be godly. We get it. But now what? Can you as pastors offer no guidance beyond that? When I heard that, read that comment, I, I couldn't help but feel the, the frustration behind the commenter's voice because to a certain degree, I think they're right. Uh, I don't think we've done an adequate job of talking about the intersection of our faith and work in a biblically sophisticated way. And so my modest goal or mammoth goal, depending on the way that you look at it, is to change the way you get ready for work on a dreadful Monday morning. And the way that I want to do that is by first telling you a story about my father-in-law. My father-in-law uh, was an athlete in college. He played college basketball. Uh, to this day, whenever I sleep over at my in-laws, I hear him huffing and puffing because this man in his late 60s is doing push-ups and sit-ups on his yoga mat to this day. Two months ago, he got shoulder surgery and was in a sling. Two days after his surgery, he went right back to work where he works six to seven days a week at his deli. My father-in-law is by far, by far, one of the hardest working, most detailed, thorough people I have ever met in my life. But there was a period in his life for two years where my father-in-law was unemployed. Can you imagine one of the hardest working people you've ever met not knowing what to do with himself for two years? It was absolutely dehumanizing and it was brutalizing for him. And for those of you who have been unemployed or are unemployed or you're between two projects and you're still getting paid but you don't know when you're actually going to do work again, you know how that can feel. Now, why does unemployment, why does us not working actually feel brutalizing? Why is it actually worse than being in a job that you actually hate? And the reason for that, the reason why we feel this way is because God made us in his image. Now, for those of you who are church, what I just said may have just flown right over your head because you've heard this sentence so much before. But let me just say this again. God has made us in his image. And what that means is if God has made us, if God makes things, it means he's a worker. He's an engineer. He's a sculptor, an artist, a scientist. And so he makes us, but he not only makes us, but he makes us in his image in order to mirror him and reflect him. And therefore, if God is a working God, we are called to be a working people. And when we don't work, that's why we feel dehumanized because this is not the way that you were designed to be. You were designed to work. Now, this is the biblical explanation for why we work. We're made in God's image. Now, if you were to go outside on the streets and ask your average New Yorker, why do you work? Chances are they're not going to say because I'm made in the image of a working God. What are they going to say? The pragmatic are going to say, I work to pay the bills and to put food on the table. Uh, others are going to say, I work for a fat paycheck so I can afford a certain lifestyle and have security for my future. Others are going to say, I work for a sense of personal identity and worth and dignity. Now, all of these answers, the pragmatic answer, 
the paycheck answer, the personal identity answer, all of these answers are in and of themselves not wrong. But it's still a very myopic way of viewing work because all of those answers are still about me. And so it's still narrow and myopic to a certain degree. I'll give you an example. If, if you are in love and you want to marry another person, and someone says to you, why do you want to marry the other person? And your response is, because of the way they make me feel. There's nothing really wrong with that answer. But you do know that love is more than just about how another person makes you feel. It's also about serving the other person, giving your life to the other person. And similarly, it is with our work. It's not just about what we get out of it, but it's about how we can use our work to serve one another. Now, where am I getting that from? From our text. And so if you take a look with me again at Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3, I want to just read this for us. In Ephesians 4, it says, Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands. That they, may have a, uh, that they may have something to share with those in need. And so here we see the horizontal dimension to our work, to share with those in need, to help and serve other people. And in Colossians 3, we have the vertical dimension. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. And so here we see the horizontal, dim uh, horizontal dimension and the vertical dimension behind uh, why we work. And I, I have to tell you that even though this sounds very simple, this is the secret sauce to dealing with our discontentment when it comes to our jobs. This is the secret sauce, understanding that there is a horizontal and vertical dimension to our work. Uh, every Monday morning as a staff, we begin our meetings not with business, but we always begin every Monday meeting with stories. Now, why do we begin every Monday meeting with stories? We begin each meeting with stories to remind ourselves why we do the things that we do. What I do is teach, preach, meet with people, etc. That's what I do. But why do I do the things that I do? Why do we do the things that we do as a staff? It's really because we are here to serve you. <laughs> we are your servants. And so we talk about stories of lives being changed, uh, stories of people that are going through a difficult time, stories of transformation. We do that every single Monday, and we have story after story after story every single week to remind ourselves why we do the things that we do. And there's a good possibility when you get ready for work tomorrow and you show up to work, your manager is not going to say, hey, let's talk about why we're doing what we're doing. They're probably not going to do that. Instead, what you're going to get is indirect subliminal messages on why you're doing what you're doing. And the reason why you're doing what you're doing is to maximize profit for our company. And if you can't do it well, guess what? You're expendable. And I want you to know that even though you might have a bad manager or a bad boss that's a jerk, I want you to know that even though you have a bad manager, it doesn't mean that the work that you're doing is illegitimate as long as the horizontal and vertical dimension are in play. Are you really helping other people without doing it unethically? And are you doing it in such a way that it is serving God and honoring to him? Because guess what? We are running God's world. We are the masks of God. And as long as you understand that, you have the wide dimension, even though you might not get the reinforcement from uh, your boss. 
I think about Jason in our community who is an architect. And once in a while, I'll talk to Jason, and I'll say, how's work going? And he says, you know, I don't know how much longer I want to just make big homes for rich people. I talked to Chris this week, who is a lawyer at a firm, and I say, you know, how's work going? And she says, well, basically what I do is just help affluent companies become more affluent. And I want you to know that whether you're helping the rich get richer, or you're helping the poor get out of poverty, or you're like my immigrant mother who has worked at the same dry cleaner for over 30 years of her life, regardless of what you are doing, all work matters to God. Some work might give you more pay. Some work might have more of an impact on our world. But all work inherently matters to God if you are serving God and serving people. Let me give you one other story. And don't ask me why I was watching this documentary, but I was watching a documentary on rats. Did you know, according to urban legend, that there are more rats in New York City than people? And I think one of the reasons why there are so many rats in our cities is because we are the only city that I know of that I visited domestic and abroad. We're the only city that I know where we put our trash on the sidewalk. And those piles of trash, it's perfect breeding ground and feeding ground for rats. Now, can you imagine for a moment in our city if no one ever came to pick up the trash? Our city would be unlivable. We would be outrun by rats. But it's because people come and pick up our trash that we have a city to live in. All work, regardless of what you are doing, inherently matters to God if you're doing it for him and you're doing to serve other people. I want to read you a quote on the first page of your bulletin from A.W. Tozer and Tim Challies. In Tozer's classic book, The Pursuit of God, this is what Tozer writes. Uh, it is not what a man does that determines whether his work is sacred or secular. It is why he does it. The motive is everything. Here's the why question, right? Not the what. Tim Challey says, the true purpose of our work is to serve God and serve others. And you can do that in any job. If you are a garbage collector, keep doing it and do it with excellence. If you're an accountant, do your work with precision and integrity. And if you are a cell phone sales rep in the mall who hates his job but can't seem to find another, keep looking for that other job. But in the meantime, you can serve people and the Lord right where you are. So if the purpose of our work is to vertically serve God, horizontally serve one another, the next question is, now what should I do with my life? What should I do for work? And this is a tricky question. Uh, it's a tricky question for several reasons. On the one hand, we are more vocationally nimble than ever before. Uh, millennials, on average, stay at a job for one year and eight months. And so we like having options. We like pivoting our careers in different directions. And so we're vocationally very nimble. And so to ask the question, what should I do for the rest of my life, is a very tricky question to answer. But not only are we vocationally very nimble, but there's a second reason why this is a very difficult question. The second reason is because our passions are not static, 
but our passions are fluid. Uh, and I hate to break it to you if you're a college student, but this is a great example. Chances are that whatever you're majoring in, when you graduate from college, you're going to do nothing <laughs> related to that major. 73% of college grads do nothing related to their major. Why? Because our passions change. Why do our passions change? Because we change. We're not the same people that we were five years ago, 10 years ago. And so our interests, our, our likes and our dislikes have changed. And so the old adage or expression, uh, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life, uh, sounds good. But the truth of the matter is our passions change. Our interests change. And you know what? Sometimes our passions are disordered. The things that we want are not necessarily the things that we need. And so this is the proverbial cart before the horse. But the horse that comes before the cart is not our passion, but its purpose. And so if you take a more careful look at Colossians 3, look, look at what it says. Paul says, whatever you do, whether you're passionate about it or not passionate about it, whether you like your job or don't like your job, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. So Paul here doesn't say follow your passions and do whatever your passions direct you towards. Instead, he says, whatever you do, do it passionately. In other words, purpose comes first. My purpose is to serve God, serve other people. Passion comes second. Mission comes first. Passion uh, comes second. And if you take a look at Paul's biography, for example, what was Paul in his former life very passionate about? He was passionate about persecuting Christians. He was a religious terrorist. If you take a look at the latter chapter of his life, he wasn't a Christian persecutor, but he was the greatest Christian missionary in history. Now, how does Paul go from here to here? How does his passions that are so seemingly antithetical go from one spectrum and swing to the, to the next? It's because he got a new purpose. Purpose comes first. Passion uh, comes second. Uh, Chip Heath is a uh, professor at Stanford Business School, and he talks about uh, carpet companies. And there was this one particular carpet company that wanted to change the industry by becoming more eco-friendly. Because when you throw out your carpet, it's just a large amount of toxic waste ready to happen. And so, you know, they'll take it to a landfill, they'll burn it up. Carpets are made of oil. Somehow we end up consuming it. And so this carpet company wanted to completely revamp and change the industry by making more eco-friendly uh, carpets. And so as a result of that, a lot of people from New York City ended up moving to Atlanta to join this carpet company. And if you ask the employees uh, if they ever thought in their entire life that they would be passionate about selling carpets, they would have told you no. But how did they become passionate about selling carpets? They found a new purpose. Purpose comes first. Passion comes second. I'm a stay-at-home father. I'm not passionate <laughs> about changing poopy diapers. I'm not passionate about cleaning up vomit. Uh, I'm not passionate about not having a conversation from nine to five <laughs> without a single you know, adult conversation. I'm not passionate about that, but you know what? I do derive a lot of purpose behind it. And as a result, I've become more passionate about it. Purpose comes first, passion comes second. Let me read a, a th our third quote from Cal Newport, who is a professor at Georgetown. And in his book, So Good They Can't Ignore You, uh, this is what Newport says. Matching your job to a pre-existing passion does not matter. 
Passion comes after you put in the hard work to become excellent at something valuable, not before. If you want to love what you do, abandon the passion mindset. What can the world offer me? And instead, adopt the craftsman mindset. What can I offer the world? Telling someone to follow their passion is disastrous. That advice has probably resulted in more failed businesses than all the recessions combined. Because that's not how the vast majority of people end up owning successful businesses. Passion is not something you follow. Passion is something that will follow you as you put in the hard work to become valuable to the world. And I like this because he's not, he's not sort of saying passion is unimportant. Our passions, we're not stoics. You know, our, our emotions, our passions, our affinity greatly, greatly matters. But it, it takes second fiddle to purpose. Our purpose comes first. Why do we do what we do? To serve God and to serve other people. Passion, I would say, uh, comes second. And I do think that one of the reasons why our passion narrative is so strong, uh, I like the way that the philosopher Charles Taylor uh, uh, put it when he said that when you live in a world and you open the lid up, and you remove the transcendent, and you remove the eternal things, and you close that lid, and now you live in a closed world and a closed universe, and this world is all you get, and you only get 50, 60, 70, 80 years, what is that gonna promote? Is that gonna promote a life of self-sacrifice? If you only have 50, 60, 70, 80 years, of course not. What, would, what is that kind of life gonna, world gonna promote? It's gonna promote a life where my passions, my interests, my happiness, my whatever I want, that's the most important thing, not giving myself away. And yet, when you take a look at Colossians 3, Paul is basically saying that this world is not closed. This world is open. That there are things that are transcendent, that are eternal. And if you take a look at uh, Colossians 3, 24 more closely, it says that since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward... You know, when you take a look at the context of this verse, Paul, he is writing specifically to bondservants. And when bondservants served a family, they were not guaranteed the inheritance that the family members would get. They were just servants. And so as a bondservant, there was very little to look forward to in this life. And you can imagine being a bondservant to a family. I mean, there, there, was, there were certainly days where you would feel like, what am I doing with my life? Does my work even matter? I'm just serving this family. And even though at times we might feel like our work doesn't really matter or it's not making an impact on the world or we're not changing the world, Paul says even though you might feel like that, just know, just know that even though you might not get an inheritance in this life for all the labor of your hands, that there is a future inheritance that is waiting for you. Now what is that future inheritance? put it very, very simply, the future inheritance that awaits us all is everything good in this life, but better. And not just for 50, 60, 70 years of your life, but forever. Now, how is it that we get this type of inheritance? It's not because of our work or our philanthropic endeavors. But the reason why we get this inheritance is because of the work of Jesus himself, specifically the cross. And on the cross, Jesus dies for our sins. He dies specifically for the fact that we are far more interested in serving ourselves than we are serving other people. 
He dies for the fact that when we view our relationships, we view it strictly transactionally, and we commodify one another with how that person can help me get to where I need to go. He died for the fact that we oftentimes gossip about our coworkers in our digital chat rooms and in physical chat rooms. He died for the fact that we look down upon others who have an inferior position to us. He died for the fact that we think of ourselves superior just because we wear a suit or we have a certain title. He died for our disordered passion of uh, money and power. He, d- he died for the fact that we mismanage one another. He died for the fact that oftentimes we live for the weekend far more than we live for God. He died for all of those things, and on your heart, he stands forgiven. Just know, just know that even though you might give your blood, sweat, and tears to your jobs, your jobs will never die for you. But also know this, you have a God that will, and he did 2,000 years ago. And when Jesus did his work on the cross, he didn't get paid for it. Actually, quite the opposite happened. It cost him his life. But the reason why he gave his life as a ransom was to rescue us from our sins. Because you were his greatest treasure. You are his inheritance. You are the one thing that was missing from heaven. And when you understand that you are his greatest treasure, you can now make him your treasure. And not just a treasure for the future, but a treasure that will matter for you come tomorrow morning. And I want to close with one final quote from Peter Coe in his article, Everyday Evangelism. And Coe talks about how our relationship with God can change the way that we view our work tomorrow. And Coe says, I go to work each day with a simple understanding that one day I'm going to die, and I'm not going to be able to take with me anything that I've built up in terms of my career and material wealth. On the flip side, it's incredible, incredible to know that whenever I walk into a room at work, whether it's a meeting with colleagues or the board, I'm actually the most powerful person in that room, as I have a direct relationship with the sovereign of the universe. I'm the wealthiest person in that room, as I have an inheritance kept from me that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And I have the most security in that room because God sent his son as the ultimate reassurance that my future, it's secure. I already have everything that I could possibly ever desire, actually much more, given freely by God in Christ. Now here's the question, how do we tap into that resource on a daily basis? Well, very practically speaking, one of our biggest initiatives this year is to do something on faith and work. And although it's in its very embryonic stages, I'm very excited about that because we cannot not talk about work because of how much time you spend there and how much it shapes who you are. And so this is one of the things that I'm really, really looking forward to uh, this coming year. As I close, just remember that all of your work, all of your work matters to God, but also remember that God matters to your work. Let's pray together. Father, I am, I am praying that your spirit, as soon as we hear that alarm on our smartphones tomorrow morning, would remind us and give us a, 
a fresh vision for why we do the things that we do. And even though we might be catechized and sort of doctrinated by what our own companies and firms and agencies might say for why we are there, help us to always remember the bigger why, the greater master, the greater boss that we serve, and that is you. And so I am praying that you would help us to work at whatever we are doing with all of our hearts and to do it as passionately as we can to honor you and to help other people. In Jesus' name I pray.